All right. Well, we're continuing our uh, sermon series on uh, the stories that Jesus told. And today I've titled the, the message Wedding Feasts and Banquets. And basically the text is the 14th chapter of Luke. And I want to just kind of carry on from what I shared in terms of the communion meditation this morning. And that is the, the importance of shared meals. Have you ever stopped for just a minute to think about how hard it must have been for Jesus to find a moment to relax? Several times in the Gospels we're told how the crowd was pressing in on him even in private homes. And our setting for today's story is no different. Even being invited for a meal was a time to test him. Not a time where you can let your guard down and relax. And for ancient people, sharing a meal was something very important. It was symbolic of common life. It was symbolic of a, of a very deep unity that they would share with one another. For the people of Israel specifically, the practices that they employed during shared meals provided some pretty strict social boundaries between God's people and those on the outsider. In fact, to eat a meal with someone meant that you were willing to accept that person as family. And potentially even accept them as someone that might be involved in a planned marriage. And the strict food laws that were in Leviticus uh, helped to maintain the separation between God's people and the nations. So in Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 6, when Jesus calls Matthew, also known as Levi, who, though he was a Jew, was also a tax collector, a trader, an outsider. And he went to Matthew's house for a feast. We hear the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now in our text for today, a ruler of the Pharisees had invited Jesus to have a Sabbath meal. And dinner on the Sabbath day seems to have been a rather special meal. First of all, the meal had to be prepared ahead of time because cooking on the Sabbath was considered work. So everything had to have been done before the Sabbath began. And then it was very common for those meals to invite guests. And again, what should have been a time of relaxation, a time of rest, the Sabbath day would not be so. Jesus' enemies were present in full force. And once again, verse 1 is going to say they were watching him carefully. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, do you notice the setup? 
They were watching him carefully. Clearly. They were hoping to find Jesus doing something for which they could bring a charge against him. Even though it's still very early in his ministry. And that happened many times. It's probable that the presence of this man with dropsy was a trap set by the enemies. They hoped Jesus would break a law. And support for this, I think, is seen in the phrase, and Jesus responded. Because think about it. There's no mention that anything had been spoken. So Jesus was actually responding to answering their actions of having this man here. The thoughts of the enemies. Or the other option is, is a man could have entered the house looking for help, knowing that Jesus was there. Which would have been a mute appeal to which Jesus replied. Luke doesn't tell us. He simply says, Behold, he was there. And Luke goes on to tell the story. An incident that involved the lifting of a humiliated man. It was a disease that involves an accumulation of excess fluids in a body cavity or in the tissues. Uh, as illustrated in this 12th to 13th century mosaic uh, that's located in the Cathedral of the Assumption in Montreal, Sicily. The illness was usually accompanied by painful swelling. And it would, rather, it would render a person ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go to the temple to worship. So it's hardly someone that the Pharisee would have invited to his meal. Unless it was a trap. But did you also notice that before he took action, Jesus asked a very important question. Jesus asked whether it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. The same question that he had already asked back in chapter 6 of Luke when he healed the man with the withered hand. And it was an awkward question to answer. So they probably were no more prepared to answer the question this time than they had the first time Jesus put the question to them. Here's why. According to the rabbinic regulations, it certainly was not lawful to heal this man. Not on the Sabbath. Because more than likely, his illness wasn't going to cause him to die before the Sabbath ended. And Jesus could have healed him after 6 o'clock when the Sabbath was over. And so to agree to healing under these circumstances lead, could lead to an accusation that they were soft on law enforcement. If they said, yeah, Jesus, go ahead and heal him. But on the other hand, Lawful might mean contained in the law of Moses. Jesus is asking them, well, what about the law of Moses? What about the Torah? And there's nothing in Scripture to provide or to, to uh, forbid such healing. It was simply a rabbinic interpretation of Scripture that was a source of the rule. To insist publicly on this interpretation might lead to a charge of indifference to human suffering. So, it's 
no small wonder that they were silent. It was one of those catch-22s. Jesus liked those, by the way. Have you noticed that? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, uh, here, give me a coin. Let's, let's see. A catch-22. They were silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Their silence before the miracle made it more than difficult for them to complain afterwards. And so Jesus healed the man and dismissed him. Jesus had been invited by this ruler of the Pharisees to a Sabbath dinner. And so he would use the occasion to teach two great truths. The first concerns humility. His story would involve an invitation for us to consider. For us to consider the importance of lifting a story of honoring a truly humble person. So he goes on and he tells a parable. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, they may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was a keen observer of people. And he noted, he noted how everyone chose for themselves the best places at the table. I remember going to several wedding meals and walking in and actually was relieved when there was a table and they would ask you your name and you could tell them and they would say, oh yeah, your, your table's over here. Because walking in and seeing all those tables, I didn't want to walk in and sit down somewhere where it was going to be someone else's place. He noted how their behavior in general was needing a lesson on humility. And so he taught them to make sure that in the future they would choose the lowest place. And this would have a dual effect. Firstly, one would avoid embarrassment in case a more important person came and took their seat. And secondly, a divine principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, 
Jesus told them that if they were to sit in the lowest place and were to go to a higher, then people would appreciate them. The second lesson comes in verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here, the importance had to do with showing kindness to someone that can't repay us. And again, I think it's an invitation for us, for you and I to consider how we can go about lifting up those who have been marginalized. Think about this for a moment. It happened at our house. I'll start with a confession. Christmas time. A Christmas card comes. Oh, we didn't send a card to this person. Scurried about to find their address and get one printed out and in the mail because we want to make sure that if they send us one, we send them one. Well, Jesus has kind of taken that idea and he's putting it even larger. Many of us know the joy of inviting others to dinner and in return being invited into their homes. My wife and I look forward every year and last year it was a, it was, you know, it was a blessing during a, a time when people weren't getting out and we thought maybe this year it was going to open up more. But we really enjoy having those open houses at Christmas time where friends can come into our house and, and they can see all the work my wife has done getting things ready. Uh, I honestly think a part of the reason she's not here this morning is I think she overdid it taking things down. Uh, and wore herself down so much and the cold kind of grabbed her even harder. But just having people over, sharing in a meal, even if it's not a full course meal, even if it's those little finger foods, uh, being able to sit down and talk and get to know one another. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And the pattern is really somewhat cozy and we start to get into new relationships how rare it is however to throw a dinner party for those who might desperately need the food this isn't about giving to a food bank or a community meal to help out with the needy this is about inviting people into our home Eating a meal with someone when it might just mean that you're showing your willingness to accept that person as family. We were at one of the church conventions. We were walking down the street and there was somebody that was standing out on the sidewalk with a sign. 
asking for money for food. And I think I, I shocked some of the people when I said, you know what, why don't you just come in and eat with us and I'll take care of the cost of your meal. It shocked the person. And in fact, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They came in and let me pay for their meal and they ate, but they, they didn't feel comfortable joining us. Because we've created those kind of situations of us and them, the insiders and the outsiders. And Jesus is emphasizing the importance of inviting those who can't pay us back. Those who can't do the same thing for us. He's talking about ways that you and I can intentionally lift up those who have been marginalized. How we can intentionally reach the outcast, the undesirable. Jesus was teaching that his desire for us is to seek our reward from God and from God alone and not from other people. And at this point in the text, one of the people at the table felt a great sense of joy and as our Lord spoke of the future reward of the just, he calls out, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Verse 15. And again, Jesus uses his surroundings as an illustration in the form of a story, a parable, another lesson about food. You don't understand. It's hard to understand. Sometimes we struggle to understand that the gospel message is for those who most feel their hunger for the truth and by the truth. In the Beatitudes that Jesus began with back in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. How hungry are we? for really learning what God wants us to do and know. And the final story of Jesus, there was nothing wrong with a supper. It's about another banquet. The problem is only with the invited gifts. The importance, the focus of the story is on counting the cost. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, verses 15 to 35. But the point is that the inv invitation to enjoy this meal went out to all. But they all made their lame excuses. I have heard some of the most ridiculous excuses for why people are not accepting the inv invitation to worship and to share the meal the Lord has provided. And in many cases, excuses that those same people would never use on Monday morning with their employers, but yet they'll use them in terms of not getting out to worship. And in this story that Jesus is telling, the Master's angry. You ever stop to think about that? 
Because the master of the story represents Jesus, God, God the Father, God the Son, somehow, and the invitation given to us. And in the story, as Jesus tells it, the master was angry when his servant returned and he discovered that his invitations had been snubbed. And why not? When you go back and read those verses, look at the answers that are given. I bought a field. The the one that makes the most sense is I just got married. (coughs) And that's not a very good one. Immediately, He sent the invitation to those who really needed the food. They would be found in the streets and the lanes of the city and later in the highways and the byways. And they would be compelled to come in so that the house would be filled with gifts. And the parable ends with a note that reflects the seriousness of its message. I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The door was closed. People on the outside said, Lord, Lord, wait a minute. You know us. Just like people today who claim to be Christians are saying, why, surely the Lord knows me. But they're making no effort to worship, to serve. You know, contrary to popular belief and practice, Jesus wasn't desperate to have a large following, regardless of the depth of people's commitment. We're told in verse 25 that a great crowd was following him. And there are a lot of leaders today who would relish that kind of fame and, and they, they would probably teach a, a popular message to attract even more. And yet listen to what Jesus said. Large crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, ooh, ouch. Rather than compromise the truth, he was willing to thin out the crowd. He taught about hating our families. Now what's that mean? I don't believe it means that he actually wanted us to have ill will toward them. But what he seems to mean is that we have to keep our families in the right priority. So that even if our families are doing something to keep us from serving God, then family has to be moved down lower on the priority list. We have a rule at our house. You come and stay overnight at our house on Saturday morning, you get up and go to church with us on Sunday. The kids knew that when they were in school. If they invited guests over for a Saturday night, they were to tell those guests, you come to our house on Saturday night, you get up and go to church with us on Sunday morning. That's who we are. That's what we believe. If you don't want to get up and go to church on Sunday morning, then don't come and stay on Saturday night. Setting our priorities. He said you have to hate your own life as well. 
You have to take up your cross. You see, there was no attempt by Jesus to achieve cheap fame or to gain an easy following. That was what the temptation was all about. Why, Jesus, these people are hungry. These people are starving. You take these little rocks these that look like loaves of bread, why, you turn them into bread and everybody will be following you. Jesus, cast yourself down from the temple where everybody can see and let the angels swoop under you. Everybody will follow you. But that was not the way of the cross. The way of sacrifice. The way of pain. The way of love. Our Lord desired to be plain and truthful. And for those who heard Him, they would be under no illusions about what the kingdom of God was about. He taught them to sit down and count the cost. Just as a builder wanting to construct a tower had to consider whether or not he would have enough materials. And then Christ said something quite astounding again. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all these things cannot be my disciple. That's a hard saying. Most commentators say that this forsaking of possessions means simply giving up our own control over them. And yet, is that what it meant for the first disciples? When Jesus was walking along the, the Sea of Galilee and he called Peter and Andrew and James and John, what did he say? Come, follow me. And what did they do? They dropped their nets. They left their fishing boats. They left it all behind. You see, for the first followers of Jesus, the words were taken literally. And the discarded fishing nets bore witness to the high cost of discipleship. And ten, think about this, Ten of the original twelve disciples. Judas hung himself. Okay? Brings the number to eleven. Ten of those eleven were martyred for what they believed. Gave their lives. The only one that wasn't martyred was John who was a political prisoner and it wasn't because they didn't try because one time they threw him into a vat of what was supposed to have been boiling oil but the fire had gone out and the oil wasn't hot enough to kill him. It only burnt him. Ten gave their lives. The chapter concludes with our Lord's comparison of believers with salt. And the challenge I think to you and I is that we need to have ears to hear. Jesus is warning against a faint-hearted attachment. Trying to have Jesus as your Savior, but not being willing to have Him as the Lord of your life. 
And He does this in order for those who follow Him to experience the real thing. It's not to keep them from doing things. And I can't stress this enough. The words of the Bible are not to keep us from being happy. They're, helping, they're there to help us to have a fuller life. Time and again, as I counsel with young people who get into the wrong kind of relationship, and I share, well, you know, the Bible says this. A lot of times, they're willing to admit, yeah, if I would have only followed that, I wouldn't have had this pain or this issue, these problems in the family at large. He wants us to count the cost and to reckon all lost for His sake. For Christ count everything but loss, the song we sing. As disciples, Jesus reminds us that we are to be the salt or the flavor of the earth. We're to be different. I'm not a big salt person. I'm a big heavy pepper user. And that's been to my advantage because I have never had issues with blood pressure. But I can tell you this. My wife made some zupa this week. It's that soup that they serve at Olive Garden that has the sausage in it. Now she didn't use the spicy hot sausage. She used regular sausage. But she shared with us before we started eating. Now I didn't do any salt or pepper. And I had already taken a bite and I already knew that. Because even though it had some of the flavor of the sausage, it was still a little on the bland side. We are to be different. We're to stand out in a positive way. We're to bring flavor to those who are around us by the way that we're different. The point that Jesus is making is that as we begin to serve Christ, if we shrink back, we become as worthless as bland, saltless salt. That's why counting the cost is so important. This is why we should never, never proclaim a message that implies that grace is cheap. You will hear me say that it's not hard to become a Christian. All you have to do is come down forward, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Repent of your previous past life. Submit in baptism to the bearing of the old self and rising to walk in newness of life. But you will never hear me say, never, that it's easy to live the Christian life. Because it's not. The moment you come up out of that baptistry as a newborn Christian, Satan is going to start attacking all that much harder. And he's not going to be a funny looking creature with a pitchfork and a tail 
that we laugh at. Satan's going to come as that really good looking temptation that we want, that we desire. We started over the first of the year reading through the Bible again and it struck me again that when Satan offered the fruit to Eve it says that she not only had an interest in it because of the wisdom that it offered it says it was pleasing to her eyes. Are we ready? Are we ready to be the salt that we need to be? Let's pray.